Welcome to A Counselor's Journey to Private Practice. I'm your host, Juan, and this podcast teaches mental health professionals to cultivate curiosity and build ambition in their journey to starting, growing, and scaling a private practice. Let's dive into the episode. Hey guys, welcome to A Counselor's Journey to Private Practice. I'm here with George Ramos, Dr. Ramos, and we're going to get into the topic of starting a private practice uh, in, in home base, right? Home base is what you do, what you're known for. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about your immigration work. How you doing, George? I'm doing really well. How you doing, Juan? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Um, before we hopped on, you were telling me how tired you are and how you were up to like seven in the morning. So yeah. I was like, man, that's wild. Yeah, it's, um, I, you know, because my practice is only me, I tend to really put my full effort into it. But I got to do better with my sleep situation, but I'm going to get there. That's good. Yeah. You know, mine, I remember when I started, it was like that. And it feels like sometimes you just got to grind and grind and hustle. And, you know, back when I first got to graduate school, I'd be up two, three, four in the morning, like typing blogs, creating templates, just doing like all of those check boxes just mm-hmm. to make sure that it's growing. Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm here in New York City, right? So there's a lot of competition there's a lot of different avenues to seek and obviously whenever you market yourself and you get more business that's great but then there's more work to do behind that business and if you're like a sole practitioner like myself it all kind of falls on your you know on your feet so it it can be tough but i enjoy it yeah so you're you're in new york and kind of give a little bit of background story how long you've been up there how long you've been practicing so i've been i was born and raised in new york and i graduated from Nyack College in 2012. Um, And once I graduated, I was pretty motivated. I actually was the first person to get my limited permit. I was the first person in my class to get my license to practice. Um, So once that, those things sort of came into play, I really started to explore, well, what what do I want to do with this license? And, you know, the options weren't so great for my, um, you know, lifestyle, which were working community mental health, which is not a bad thing, but, you know, I kind of didn't really want to work for anyone else. Or the other options were to work in a private practice under someone else. But I decided I really wanted to work for myself. Um, But, you know, I had some barriers such as being able to get an office, pay rent on the office, pay for advertising. um, And it kind of really left me in a a tough spot. Um, So then, therefore, what I did was I decided, you know what, let me try in-home mental health counseling. Paid 30 bucks on Psychology Today. um, Printed up some literature. Um, got some intake forms and that was it. I was kind of off to the races for like literally $30. Um, I was nice. able to start my practice. That's a, that's a good way to do it. You know, I think sometimes a lot of clinicians and I was one of them in, in your, your upstate, I'm in North Carolina. So that price difference, you know, I hear so many stories of people saying it's expensive to live up there. You got to have a good job. Um, sure. And you know, I can imagine competition there because it's probably so saturated, dense area. Yeah. Yeah. All, you know, all those things are true that the other thing that's really, really, you know, the other thing you have to really remember about particularly being in New York, that it is really saturated. The cost of living is really high. And because there are so many therapists, you have to sort of figure out for yourself what makes you different. How is George Ramos different than George Rivera, who's doing counseling right under me? Right. Yeah. I think they don't really teach us in graduate school. And if you don't have an entrepreneurial tilt to yourself, you'll really struggle when you are looking to launch a practice. That's a good point you make there. They don't teach us that in graduate school. I think they do a good job. At least I felt, you know, my experience in graduate school, 
um, currently in doctor school. It's a good job where this is how you can be an ethical professional clinician. This is how to apply CBT or whatever you know style you want to uh, implement in your practice. But then with questions like yours, um, I can't afford rent, but I want to have a private practice. What do I do? You know, you can get stuck. How did you get unstuck? You know, how did you take that leap to say, I'm about to go into somebody's house and provide a clinical service? Well, I, I had a bit of an advantage where I did child welfare for 10 years before switching over to uh, mental health counseling. So whenever you're in child welfare, right, you're going to people's homes, you don't know them, you're talking to them about very uncomfortable topics, sometimes even removing their kids, right? So in my case, I had been to every sort of home in every possible condition, talking about all these different scenarios and situations. There wasn't really much that was going to frighten me. Um, and I also worked in, you know, in Harlem in New York City, which is a beautiful area of Manhattan. Uh, but there are some of the areas that are challenged relative to socioeconomics. And, you know, those, those um, certain communities have these unique um, barriers to care and, you know, that can sort of play itself out into the population. Um, anyway, so after I graduated, I figured that maybe I can give this a try because I actually had done it in my internship. Mm-hmm. And I was really nervous, but the investment was so low, just going on psychology today. And literally in my first, so many people, when they launch their practice, you're putting whatever thousands of dollars in. And then, you know, yep. maybe in your first year or maybe I don't know, first few months, you are profitable, right? Where you're actually cover your expenses. And now you've made yourself a dollar or two. In my case, I was profitable on my first visit, right? Yeah, that, I see that. There are things that are tradebacks for that, such as if I'm doing in-home mental health counseling, maybe I can't see eight or 10 clients like you may be able to see in an office, but I also may be able to charge a premium that other clinicians may not be able to charge, which will put me at the same space in the same, um, the same net, but then my gross may be actually higher because my overhead is zero. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because, you know, here, like, I'm at the office. You can see my door. Hopefully, you beautiful like office it. Beautiful and beautiful door. <laughs> it's an awesome door. It's got a yeah, it door now. <laughs> Best door I've seen all day, actually. There we go. But you're right. Um, I, I used to do intensive in-home, and I would go into people's homes. And it, I would always think, like, okay, I'm in this house for X amount of time, then I got to drive to the next one. But if you're charging a premium, then, and your expenses are low, then, you know, you can compete with the individuals in the office. And, you know, there's, an, there's another tilt to that, which I think a lot of clinicians don't know. And again, they don't teach you in graduate school, which is when you start to launch your practice and you accept private insurance, if that's what you want to do, you'll have what, what are these things called CPT codes where you can bill for services, right? And you have location code is like one, two. For in-home counseling, you can do location code 12, right? So you can get the standard fee. But there's actually another CPT code, 99341 to 99350, that's specifically for in-home work. And if you ask your provider about those codes, they may not give them to you up front, but you ask them about those codes, what you'll see sometimes is they can be 20 to 40% more. Oh, wow. But if you don't know, you won't ask, and you'll be making the same income. You won't necessarily be operating of a, out of a loss, but you'll be taking 20 to 30% of your fee, a hit on that, right? And that could maybe be your taxes. And essentially, once you are able to adjust your fee, you'll be in a spot where you're making more than some of your colleagues after um, after overhead and you know taxes, things of that nature, while doing less. Yeah, man, that's a good nugget. I, I had no idea about that. Um, one of the things that, you know, when you were saying that, it stuck out to me. I, I do some EAP work, employment assistance uh, program, I believe, right? And I, I would always just be given a rate, like here's your rate. 
a dollar, right? Yeah. And then at one point, I was like, you know what? I don't like this rate. I, I provide Spanish speaking services. So I just sent an email back and said, hey, this is the rate I want. They're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. So it's exactly yeah. what you're saying. You know, advocate for yourself. And I think for you, it's probably from a, the personality standpoint of having a very entrepreneurial, it's very rare to have this entrepreneurial tilt while also being clinically sound. It seems like you have to have one of the other in many instances, but many people, they get into these um, contracts and they are given a form. It's a really large contract you have to sign. And oh, we yeah. say, okay, well, that's what it is. And for instance, when I first started doing treatment and I tried to get on insurance panels, they actually said, no, we don't need you. We're saturated in your area. And what I interpreted that to mean is like, well, you're not special. What makes you different? Yeah. Um, and I emailed them back. I said, hey, 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 but I do this in-home counseling thing. And they said, tell me more. Um, and then they essentially put me on the panel and I'm the only person that takes insurance and does in-home counseling um, with my immediate area. I like that. Um, I, I know you didn't do this off the back, but it kind of seems like if you're all the way in graduate school, already developing that mindset of entrepreneur, clinician, you know, who's your ideal client, where are they at, and how can you meet them while still taking into account expenses, uh, mm -hmm. earnings, et cetera. Yeah. And you know, the thing with counseling that I tell my students now as a professor is that we do really good work. Um, it's really valuable work, but it doesn't require you to be a martyr, yeah. right? And I think you still have to, I love helping people, but I love having a more, I love paying my mortgage. I love being able to get my wife a meal. I love being able to maybe get my wife a pair of shoes and my daughter some some things as well. And I think what happens is we really value our work and our training and our investment. But then sometimes we forget how to monetize that investment that we've made um, and really kind of try to um, seek out the respect we deserve and quantify it in terms of what our fee should be. Absolutely. That, that's something, you know, when you're sharing it, I struggled for years coming, really pushing away and against that mindset of, your helper, your supportive person. When you look at our field, mental health or psychology in a way, it's service-based. You know, mm -hmm. you got individuals out there, like just throwing one out, Gandhi, right? People that gave themselves the community, but it wasn't about the, the, the cash money. It wasn't about the dollar figures. But then, you know, you and I are parents, so we're going, I want to get my kids something. And it's sure. developing and fostering that mindset. It's tough. Yeah. It's, it's been tough for me. It's a journey, still is. Yeah, and you know, whenever I, I have other colleagues or I tell my students, I say, look, you go to your doctor, right? Your doctor is a good fee, a good service for you. You don't leave thinking, well, maybe this would be a charitable experience, right? The doctors put a lot of time, effort, and he uses expertise or her expertise. And you want to pay them accordingly as they would like to be compensated. Same, same principle. Yeah. Being able to relate yourself to other professionals in the field and, you know, saying I'm just like them, you know, providing an equal service, a supportive service. It helps kind of calm and ease that anxiety, I think, in most um, professionals in our field that haven't had that maybe undergraduate uh, education on business mindset. Now, I want to just add something here, Juan, for people who are listening and maybe thinking of do doing in-home work. It's great work. It's the most intimate you can have with the family. It puts almost the therapeutic alliance in a hyperbaric chamber and it like helps fortify it much more quickly. But there are some trade-offs. The trade-offs obviously are managing privacy Something you have to really kind of watch out for is you go to someone's house, people have drop cams, wise cams, ring doorbells. You really want to ask people um, how are, how can they help you manage their privacy? And you actually may have to sort of have that in your informed consent. So you want to make sure you, you if you're working with your lawyer that you have 
documentation and you have certain things within your practice that are relative to in-home work. And then also you're going to have a lot of different scenarios, right? You're going to go into places, they're going to be like palatial houses. You're going to other places where it's like public housing. Is there going to be a place for you to sit? Are you okay with cats? Are you okay with dogs? All these different things. So the other part is that in in-home counseling, you don't really have an office in a neutral location. So you have to use your own home to do some of your work. That can be a bit stressful. Yeah. Right. And a very, um, kind of un, in a very sort of sneaky way it um, sneaks up on you because I come home and I'm finished doing these meetings and if I go to my spare room where I have my study at, it automatically puts me in the transference of going back to work. So you've got to be somewhat disciplined there because if not, you end up working until like two or three in the morning like me and that's not sustainable. Yeah, I see that. Sharing those stories reminds me of um, the work I did in intensive in-home. Um, what, what, what would you say to clinicians out there that are kind of saying, you know what, I, I like that idea of going into someone's home, building that, uh, what was the term you use? Hyper? Therapeutic alliance. Therapy, like yeah. Because mm-hmm. I, I will relate to that. When I did intensive at home, it did feel like that. I mean, right away, you're going into someone's home environment and it's, it's welcoming yeah. uh, versus what takes place in the clinical office. Uh, it takes a little bit longer, I would say, to get to that point. So clinicians, our clinicians are listening and they're out there. You mentioned psychology today. What else did you do to um, to market yourself? What you know, whether through platforms or through the people that you serve. So yeah, psychology today was big. Applying for the immig- uh, immigration, applying for the um, insurance companies and getting on their panels was really big. Also, something I did, which m- many therapists don't do, I don't know why. I looked up the three area hospitals in my area that have psychiatric um, ho- emergency rooms. Yeah. I called their social workers and I said, Hey, my name is George. This is what I do. This is what I offer. Um, and then I actually had to cut that off because it was just so much. Um, and what happens is in many hospitals, unless you're able to get a discharge plan, they can't discharge the patients, right? Insurance wants the patients discharged. Um, patients want to be discharged and the social workers want the patients to be discharged. So I speak with the, the social worker, the administrator, and I send them my information. And I say, well, this is what I can do. These are the insurance I take. This is my fee. Um, and what you'll see is that you'll have many motivated hospitals calling you because they'd like to get their clients discharged. Why did you pick the social worker? The social worker is usually the person that is the gateway to the services. Um, and they're the people that usually help with the discharge prior to get prior to getting to the actual clinician. Um, so it's also really knowing about who to talk to. If you're going to a hospital, talk with a hospital social worker, if you're going to a school, School social workers are good, but assistant principals really make the world go round. And if you have a specialty working with kids, those are the people you want to look at. You've got to really think. And if you're going to work with a lawyer or something, you don't want to speak with the lawyer. You want to speak with the person at the reception desk. You've got to really be thoughtful, use your emotional intelligence and kind of figure out, well, who's the gatekeeper here? What's the pipeline to the referral service? And that's not always the primary clinician. Yeah, man. I mean, you killed it. I'd love that. Listening in, I'm like, check, check, check. Mm. Um, it's one of the questions in you know, ways that so many clinicians get stuck because, you know, you'll, you'll read things out there on how to build a practice and it'll say something as far as build relationship with referrals. And it's kind of like, well, no shit, right? Yeah, yeah I, I get I'm supposed to do that or build connections with people in the community. Yes, understand. But who exactly and, and why? And, you know, you shared that. There's one more I wanted to share that I neglected. I can't believe it's had a big impact on me. Once I finished graduate school, I had didn't have many clients before I started doing in-home. So I prepared 
a PowerPoint that was maybe like 45 minutes long. And it was just on basic general mental health that I would, that I would share with churches. And I would tell churches, I'd love to come do this for you. I do it for free. And the reason I would do it for free is because if, when people are in crisis, the first place they usually go is to church many times. And their pastors do a great job with pastoral counseling. But many times they recognize that this actually could be something relative to mental health. So while I'm doing that, refer- while I'm doing that presentation, I'm actually building a network with the parishioners, but the pastors. When you talk about therapeutic alliance, pastors have that in spades in a way that we can't get it initially, right? People, there's this inherent trust built into them. So if you do a few churches, five of them, and let's say two pastors take a liking to you, that could be referral services. Um, that could be a referral stream that can go on for years, right? And people will... People will act on what their pastor says more quickly than they will what their doctor says, their social worker or their school social worker. Absolutely. You know, that highlights such an intimate level with a member of a church and their pastor uh, compared to maybe a physician or, you know, some other external professional. And, and I like how you do it pro bono where it's free. I forget what book I read, but there was this idea where this person came up with a gym, like a whole, you know, like a YMCA, if you will. And he offered it for free to everyone, I think for like a week or something. And then at the end of the week, if people wanted to continue, then they could pay. And I mean, it was almost everyone signed up for it. Sure. And it's exactly what you're doing. You know, you show people your, your, your product. If we were artists, we'd be able to say, here's my canvas. Or there's a door I made. You like the woodwork? And then if you yeah. like it, then, you know, we can continue to work together. I think sometimes people think giving, I should say giving something away for free, but providing a service to the community or someone without receiving payment seems counterintuitive to the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial instinct. But actually, I think it's the opposite. If you have something, especially if it's yes. relatively brief or something like that, it gets someone a chance to build relationships. And just like in clinical practice, just like with your spouse, just like with your kids, relationships are everything. And they're comprised of trust, they're assessing your ability. And this is a really good way for someone to say, hey, I see that person. Um, I like them. And that's actually how I got into immigration evaluations was through that church referral. Nice. Yeah. I, I was just thinking, you know, imagine going up, you're married, I'm married. We go up to our wife and we say, hey, listen, you, you want to get married? Yeah. They'd be like, whoa, let me know you first. Yeah. Well, I had to do a lot of convincing in the initial, right? So imagine if I didn't know this person. Pro bono work. Exactly. Yeah. So you're right. No, I feel you. It, it, it makes perfect sense and it applies to every situation in life. Um, I, I, I like that a lot. And it's important for clinicians to be able to kind of look at that business mindset here and also acknowledge, and maybe you and I relate to this as clinicians, it's probably an area that we're really good at knowing how to help other people. Yeah, exactly. 100%. And I know people are listening to this, and I think every clinician has the capacity to have this entrepreneurial tilt to them, but not every clinician may be built out for that, right? Depending on their personality. Right. There's nothing wrong with going to work in a community mental health center, doing your great eight to 12 hours a day, whatever that might be. That's really admirable work. We need community mental health, but there are other options for clinicians. And that's always what I preach to my um, students as well, which is nothing wrong with the traditional path, but there's also nothing wrong with forging your own as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, I'll throw one more nugget in there. Third piece, nothing wrong with uh, hiring out. You know, if you're a really awesome clinician mm-hmm. and it's like, man, I need somebody like George who's able to cultivate these relationships with referrals. Being able to pay, you know, say $1 for that service when you're getting $10 in return. 
Yeah. So just to kind of add to that, I know we're at the end of our time, but I, as you know, I do immigration evaluations and I was struggling to get referrals and we did some SEO work and it turned out that there were only like 300 people in the entire country looking for these immigration hardship or psychological evaluations. So I paid my SEO person about a thousand dollars, which is a lot of money for a small practice, but it's been the best investment I think in my professional career, probably right up there with actually getting my license in the sense of having really specialized work. And like I said, it was a lot of money, but totally, totally worth it. Yeah. And it seems like in your practice, you did almost two niche, two niches, right? One with the home-based therapy, which differs than the traditional in the office. And mm-hmm. then the other niche that <clears throat> you did was the immigration work. And then you did the ROI, right? ROI, if you're listening in, is return on investment. So if you're paying, let's say, $1K, $1,000 for marketing, um, and let's say you have an immigration evaluation and you're charging $500 for it. You need two of those to break even three, you know, you're, 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 you're ahead. Yeah. You know, and in my case, it's, it's about that simple because I don't have overhead, right? My overhead is just the gas in my car and whatever I've printed out. So when you're doing your ROI and you're, and you know, when you're a, a, an emerging clinician and you're kind of thinking about, well, this is how much I pay essentially an hour for my office time, whatever it is, you know, your insurance or whatever, you know, whatever that might be. And once you get to a space where your ROI is in the, black mm-hmm. it makes you like it takes a while and it gets complicated but once that happens the momentum keeps going right and sometimes you've got to really look at that initial investment you've got to say well is this worth it and you've got to bet on yourself just like when you go for a job interview the supervisor is betting that you're going to do a good job you've got to have that same confidence for yourself absolutely and when you say black you mean like we're, we're, we're still not more in the hole we're in well, no, so when i when i mean like so when you're in the red right you still oh but once you get in the black even by a dollar you're getting more towards the good Okay. It may take some time to get there, uh, but once you're there, the momentum picks up. Yeah. I had this really awesome consultant that I worked with at a grad school, and he, he explained to me ROI, return on investment. And I was nervous. I was nervous to pay, you know, monies for marketing because, I didn't, you know, I didn't know. I was like, I got to pay this money for someone mm-hmm. to hopefully come in? Yeah. And then he goes, Juan, you've been doing ROI since the minute you left uh, high school. He's like, you went, you went, you got your undergraduate. That was ROI, return on investment. You had no idea getting an undergraduate degree would pay off. And the same thing for your master's and so on. Yeah. And I remember I started to smile just like this. And I was like, you're right. <laughs> yeah. And you know, really savvy clinicians like want to go to the next level. You can develop these trainings, these seminars. And if they're recorded, now you can have, you can collect income on those into perpetuity, right? Or until they need yeah. to be updated. So whatever you put out initially to make that product, um, your ROI will continue to go, right, without you necessarily having to manage it. That's like gold standard. Um, yes. You know, those are things that we should be thinking about as well. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many options for clinicians. It's a, it's a field where, you know, one year you could be working with kids. The other one, you do some continuing education and you could be working with couples. Yeah. There's just so many directions you could go in, which is you know, one of the reasons I love it. Yeah. It's a lot, a lot and a lot of room for specialty areas especially if you see something on the horizon within our culture, whether it's it, some challenges with immigration, gender identity, whatever it might be, that's sort of an emerging issue that people aren't really ahead of, especially if you can kind of get to it early. Uh, you could actually be one of the leaders, at least within your respected area, and that's good for marketing in and of itself. Absolutely. Kind of give you that, uh, what you said, I was just going to copy you, man. That Give you that leader role. <laughs> yeah, sort of expertise, right? There we go. There we go. Um, George, you've been amazing on here, man. Before we hop off, people listening in, uh, clinicians, 
if they're able to, if they want to be able to contact you, how can they reach out to you? Sure. So if you'd like, you can look me up on LinkedIn. Just type in George James Ramos Jr. and type in like mental health app there. I'll pop up. You can go to nycimmigrationevals.com. That's my website for my immigration evaluations. Um, and those are really the best ways to get in touch with me. I've really enjoyed spending some time with you, Juan, and I love the fact that you're doing this for our clinicians. I hope it makes our field um, more appreciated. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. Thank you. It's been an honor to, you know, to communicate with you, to share space with you. Hopefully people are able to uh, you know, reach out and, and get things rolling. Thank you, Juan. I appreciate that. In your journey of private practice, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Please leave an awesome review and share this podcast with any counselor you think is working towards starting, growing, and scaling a counseling practice. Let's grow together in our journey. I'll see you in the next episode.